from Tokyo, Japan. I'm Franklin, and you're listening to the Grok Science Show. That's right, it's a weekly look at the world of science, technology, and the way they affect our daily lives. Coming up on today's show, Dr. John Chris joins us to talk about living in the Anthropocene. So stay tuned for all of this here on the Grok Science Show. program. Well, scientists these days have coined the word Anthropocene as the area in which we live in. Uh, it's no longer the Holocene, but the Anthropocene where humans have been the dominant driver of the planet's changes. Well, joining us right now today is our very special guest, John Cress, who was co-editor of the recently published book, Living in the Anthropocene, Earth in the Age of Humans. Dr. Chris, thank you so much for joining us here today. Frank, my, my pleasure to be on the program. So you've written, or and you've edited this very comprehensive uh, volume consisting of texts from 32 different authors. Uh, you know, what was your inspiration behind this? Inspiration or desperation? I'm not quite sure what's, what's a better term for it. But uh, I've been a field botanist for 40 years and have been traveling around the planet studying plants and the animals that pollinate them and disperse them and eat them. And I've just seen a lot of change in almost every habitat I've been in, whether it's Central Africa or the Amazon or Southeast Asia. And uh, I realize now that everybody else is seeing that same change. And it's because there's a lot of people on the planet and they're having a big impact on it. So I thought it would be really important for myself to expand my perception of what this sort of rapid change the planet is from different perspectives of different people, whether they're scientists like myself or economists or artists or uh, historians, even physicians. So I embarked upon this book with Jeffrey Stein, the co-editor, to try to pull all those different opinions and perspectives together. I did a quick uh, read-through of the text, and you know, I understand that this is uh, I think near the end, the description was that the Anthropocene was just a, a name for a period of time. It's not meant to be the, the end point of uh, human history. So, you know, I assume there's an optimism there that all the changes here are not negative. No, I, I think what struck me after inviting all these people to contribute to the book uh, and write about the Anthropocene from different viewpoints is that almost everyone came back and their piece concludes with some very positive perspective and some very uh, forward-looking ways that uh, we still can change things, we still can improve things. But each one of those 32 contributors also warn that we better act fast. And I think those are the two messages. We can succeed, but we don't have a lot of time until things are going to be out of our control. So, you know, central to the... You know, discussions, particularly with uh, climate change, which, you know, is a big issue in regards to the Anthropocene. You, you know, you touched upon the topic of scientists and engineers working in a more productive way. Uh, you know, could, could you elaborate a little bit on that piece? Sure. And in fact, that's 
a number of times in the course of putting this book together, Jeffrey and I invited some of the contributors. We never got all 32 contributors in the same room at the same time, but we invited them to come to the Smithsonian and have various discussions about this. So, for example, there's one contribution to the book from a psychoanalyst, and we had a session with three or four psychoanalysts to get their perspective on why people have a tendency to have an adverse relationship with nature and why do some people want to destroy forests or don't care about species going extinct or prefer to make money at the expense of uh, the degradation of habitats. And for me, that suddenly opened up a whole new perspective on, on how I'm going to convince people that the Anthropocene is real and that they have to take action about it and they have to um, make progress on some of these issues. So having insights from different things, whether it's from economic perspective and how economies work in the world or the internal world, the psychological perspective, or the historical world, that all of this has actually happened in the past and we've always recovered from it, but it can take a long time. All of that puts it all in perspective, which I think is the important point. One of the major themes in this book is about culture. Perhaps you could give, share us a couple of the thoughts on how human you know, culture and institutions play um, an important role in the Anthropocene. Certainly, Frank, they, they do. And I think one of the biggest ways to think about that is the position of indigenous peoples around the world now who have been living maybe, you could say, closer to the natural world than a lot of us living in cities and urban areas for a long time. And they seem to have a different relationship and a different appreciation. And those cultures, I think, can teach us, meaning those that live in cities and in countries such as the United States, they can give us a, a, a better understanding of what nature means and how nature works and perhaps a better appreciation of nature. So there's one type of culture informing another type of culture, and that sort of exchange is very important. The other thing, though, is as the environment changes, our cultures are going to change. We saw that rapidly when Columbus first brought the Europeans to North America, and the indigenous people of North America certainly saw uh, different culture they had not been experienced before, and the same with the Europeans. That changed both of those cultures uh, radically. And as the world becomes smaller, as communication increases and travel increases, I think those interactions of cultures, in many ways, may become more ho homogeneous. Uh, so the, the Anthropocene, a big part of it is uh, cultural change. You know, one of the discussions that goes on with people working in the development community is when you look at these indigenous cultures that have essentially evolved a relationship with nature, you know, what what should we do if they aspire to have the same kind of lifestyles that we have in modern cities, which are not necessarily, you know, aligned with nature? Yeah, that's a really tough question. I'm not sure if that's always the case. And a lot of indigenous cultures, indigenous people that I think would like to be left alone uh, but it's really an individual choice of, of where you go with that. I think we just have to make sure that that choice is available to whoever wants to make it. In your travels, you know, what have been some of the more interesting aspects you've seen of people having a you know, symbiotic relationship with nature? I guess one of the most interesting things I've observed, I've, as I said, I've been to quite a few 
places, most of them in the tropics because that's the habitats that I concentrate on. But until I went to Southeast Asia and spent a lot of time in Thailand and Myanmar, countries like that, I had never seen the relationship of religion to nature as was obvious in Buddhist countries. Particularly in Myanmar, I saw a certain respect for nature by people that follow Buddhism that I had not seen in any Christian countries, that I had not seen in any Muslim countries. Uh, and I was very much taken with this interaction and this very positive interaction between uh, practicing Buddhists and their environments. So that was one example, Frank. Okay. You know, we talked a little bit about technologies and particularly with energy. Uh, did you investigate the role of nuclear power? No, we had, there's a one or two engineers that contributed to the book, but we didn't really focus on any particular energy source in terms of this. It was more broader perspectives on just uh, change in environments and uh, the various causes of environmental change. But no, we did not really investigate nuclear power. But I would definitely accept any contribution <laughs> that wanted to deal with that. <laughs> Are you uh, thinking of writing a second uh, uh, version of this book or a second edition? And, you know, that's a really good point. When we first started this working on this book, Jeffrey and I, I think, conceived of it about three years ago and started putting it together. I, and that word Anthropocene had just been starting to circulate. I thought this book was going to be so late and was going to miss the tide because people seemed to be more accepting of environmental change with the Paris Climate Accord and such things. But it, this book that just came out this week, it could not be more relevant today than it was three years ago. It would have been five years ago. And I think probably it'll be relevant for the next 50 years. Since this is not about immediate things in environmental change, it's more about different perspectives from aspects of society on environmental change. I think these are going to be relevant for a while. Mm -hmm. And I know there are hundreds of more different views of what environmental change and climate change and the Anthropocene are. So it, if Jeffrey and I don't, I'm sure somebody else is going to put together all these ideas into a second volume. Sure, sure. You know, I, I think a study just came out recently that only 17% of Americans are active consumers of science news. And there seems to be a downward trend of, you know, Americans reading in general. Uh, are you worried that you know our citizenry will not be as well informed because they're not actively looking for you know news and uh, knowledge about about their environment? I'm very concerned about that. I'm concerned that both in North America but around the world, the interaction between people and nature is is on the decline. And that means the understanding of nature is on the decline. And that's very troubling. And that's partly why I decided to put some energy into pulling together all these essays. And that's partly why I'm talking to you, because I don't want this just to be for people to read about. I want them to hear about it. I want them to think about it. To me, we have not even really crossed that first step towards a high enough awareness of what is happening to the planet to actually make some changes in that. Uh, so I'm very concerned, and uh, 
partly why I'm at a natural history museum and not at the university. I feel like I can reach the public that are generally not very knowledgeable about science. I have a better opportunity of reaching the public in that way. Your full-time job is you're a uh, botany scientist at the Smithsonian. Um, can I ask what kind of research you've done in your career? Sure. I started my career as just interested in the diversity of plants on planet Earth. And so I was interested in how that diversity evolved over the last 3.2 billion years. I was interested in what diversity was known and what was unknown. So I spent a good deal of my early years in botany uh, just exploring the natural world, trying to find new species of plants and uh, trying to record and document what was out there. At the same time, I was also trying to understand how plants interact with animals in their natural environment. So spent a lot of time studying hummingbirds and bats that pollinate flowers and also a lot of insects and mammals that uh, eat plants. So that's taken me to quite a few different places on the planet. Now I'm tending towards more to trying to synthesize what I've observed over the last 40 years and put together books like Living in the Anthropocene to, to begin to uh, provide an analytic background for how nature is faring today in the 21st century, kind of under assault by uh, Homo sapiens. Okay, well, those are you know certainly sobering words. I, I guess I like to be optimistic and think the the potential of restoration is there. And you know, if you've alluded to the the authors in the book had a much more hopeful tone. You know, are, are there any you know final words you'd like to leave to our listeners or you know people who are curious to know what we can do to have a, a sustainable future? Well, I, I mean, I, I want to leave this discussion with a positive tone, too. And I think the book has a positive tone, partly because Jeffrey and I urged our contributors to, to think positively. I think the positive note is to know that this planet is 4.6 billion years old. Species come and go. Our species will come and go. And what we have imposed upon the planet will come and go. Um, so we need to just be positive that, that life will go on, the planet will go on, and we have a chance to choose what sort of planet we want to leave to the next, not just the next generation, but to the next species that inhabit this planet. But I'm also a, a realist, and I think you can be an optimist, but you have to be a realist and confront what's, what's really happening. We're not going to change it, and we're not going to survive if we don't confront it, and that's the whole point of the book. I think we'll make the right choice, to tell you the truth, once we know the facts and once people know what's happening out there. You know, thank you so much for, you know, sharing your thoughts. We certainly like to um, keep these discussions going and get more um, coverage for books like Living in the Anthropocene. What's the best way for readers to, uh, to buy or download this book? Uh, you can go to smithsonian.com and you can order it there. You can, it's published by Smithsonian Books, uh, Penguin Random House, so it's going to be pretty available. I'm sure you can easily find it on the web somewhere. Come to the uh -huh. Smithsonian and, and visit the bookstore. You can get it here, <laughs> right on the mall. Great. John, thank you so much for joining us here today on the Grok Science Show. And we were just talking to Dr. John Chris from the Smithsonian Institute. He is the editor of the recent book, Living in the Anthropocene. It is available at smithsonianbooks.com. 
And that's all for this week's edition of the Rock Science Show. Make sure you tune in again next week for more from the world of science, technology, and the way they affect our daily lives. In the meantime, you can check us out on the web at www.grox.net, on Facebook, and Twitter. You can also email us at science at grox.net. For Grox Science, I'm Frank Ling. Stay tuned here for more music. <laughs>